You're listening to another sermon podcast presented by Chelsea Presbyterian Church. Located in Chelsea, Alabama, we value community, fellowship, and love for people from all walks of life. For more information, find us online at www.chelseaprez.org or check us out on Facebook. All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to John 3, 25 If you do not have your Bible, uh, as always, for your convenience, it's printed in the order of worship. We are in a sermon series through the book of John. Last week, we looked at an extended conversation between Jesus and a guy named Nicodemus, who was a prominent religious leader at the time. And now the story is going to turn back for Jesus leaving out of Jerusalem and turning back to his ministry uh, outside of, of uh, Jerusalem. And John tells us that Jesus and his disciples went out in the wilderness and they were baptizing people along with John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist, as we've seen before, is renowned in the area. And now Jesus is starting to become popular. So what happens when two friends that have two vibrant ministries, two popular personalities encounter one another? Well, let's look at our passage today to figure that out. For the purpose of uh, our um, sermon today, we're just going to read the first paragraph, uh, 22 through 24, and then we'll come back through the other verses later. So John uh, 3, 22 says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Adon in Salim, because the water there was plentiful. And the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, uh, help us today be enlightened by your scripture. Help us have clarity of what you're trying to tell us. Lord, help us to have a bigger picture of who you are in all your glory and your majesty and your beauty. Help us to understand more what you have done through us that we could not do for ourselves. And help us, uh, our hearts and our minds be illuminated to your word, which is a living word. And we're thankful for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to clarify, um, and I don't know if we've made this that clear so far in the book of John, and that is the book of John was not written by John the Baptist. There are several Johns in the Bible. Uh, but why do I say that? Why, do, why would I even mention that? Well, it's important to know that the book that mentions John the Baptist so much here in the beginning is written from an outsider's perspective. This is not John writing about himself. John the Baptist writing about himself, but another John writing about John the Baptist. Basically, John's not telling his own story. In art and sculptures, if you've ever looked at the, uh, uh, a history of Christian art and even artists that were Christians, when they depict John the Baptist, uh, they call him the pointer. Uh, means he's got his finger up or beyond himself in some way. And if and we would kind of put two and two together there and understand that, but meaning that he, he is always pointing to something or someone beyond himself. See, John the Baptist was one of the most successful people in the Bible in all the right ways. What made him successful? How did he measure success? What did he do with his success? 
And what can we learn from that today? So we're going to look at three points. Those three points are printed in your order of worship. We're going to talk about today, how do you measure success? We're going to talk about success experienced, success measured, and then we're going to talk about the idea of success redefined. So let's look at our first point today, success experienced, which is the passage that we just read. Let's read that again. After Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean Christian, I mean, Judean countryside, he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing in and on near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in a prison. Now, for a second, what we're going to talk about, let's read our next verse there. Look at that. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. All right, so while the story that the book of John tells overall is obviously about Jesus, today's passage tells us about John the Baptist's ministry more than it talks about really Jesus' ministry at that point in time. And look what's happening. John is experiencing, John the Baptist experienced a lot of success here. And at this time, he may have more followers than Jesus Christ himself. It's also important to remember that John the Baptist, he didn't have any political influence or power in the Jewish system. He arrives on the scene from the wilderness, we talked about this weeks ago, like a wild man coming from nowhere and delivered his message with a force of authority. He doesn't have any fancy speech, no flowery words. He has one simple message, repent. Now you would think that message would run folks off, but people couldn't resist the overwhelming truth of his words. They couldn't resist the, they couldn't resist the authenticity of who he was, and they flocked by the hundreds to hear him and to be baptized. He is experiencing the epitome of success. Now at this point, let me ask you this. At this stage in your life, how would you measure success? Is it in terms of status or a certain amount of money that you're really trying to get to or to be popular or just well-liked to belong somewhere? Well, see, John had set out to fulfill a certain mission in life and he accomplished all of those goals and that is to be a forerunner to Jesus Christ and to tell people to repent and believe that the kingdom is at hand. But at this point, he had a couple of obstacles. Now we've already seen this before. Uh, see, the religious authorities uh, from Jerusalem had already come down before to try to shut the guy down. Y'all remember when we talked about that? They came all the way from Jerusalem out to the wilderness just for this guy to shut him down. And they couldn't. And now there's another problem that stands in the way of John's ministry. Actually, there's two problems. And one is stranger than the other. Let's look at them. See, see look at verse 25 there. We see that passage. Uh, there, the, the, a debate, really an argument breaks out regarding Jewish rites of purification. It broke out between some of John's disciples and the Jews outside their group. Now what you have to realize, in John's day, Jews commonly debated the issues related to purification all the time. So it's not strange that a discussion occurred. I mean, all the religious conversations at the time, when John and Jesus and his disciples came on the scene, all of them were centered around 
what you need to do to find favor with God by doing all the right things. Now let me make the argument even more simple. The Jews saw water as an act of purification to get them closer to God and to find favor with God. And they're saying, what's the big deal, John? Why are y'all out here doing all this work? Why are people attracted to you? Isn't baptism just ceremonial washing? We as the religious leaders, we do the rituals like this all the time. But John and his disciples are saying, no, no, no. You don't understand what we mean by baptism at all. We're saying baptism by way of water is an outward act of an internal obedience for believers and followers of the Messiah. The bottom line is this. The Jewish authorities are saying, we follow all the purification rituals, so why do we need to repent? I mean, we understand why all the non-religious people need to repent and be baptized. But when you're talking to the religious people, we have a problem with that, saying, surely you're not talking to us church folks about our need for repentance and baptism. And we say this all the time. And this is another situation where we say, where they're talking about religion versus a relationship. Baptism does not save you. The rituals of religion don't save you. Coming to church doesn't save you. Only, only a relationship with God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, will bring about healing and the restoration and the salvation that you need in your life. And John and Jesus and all of their disciples are saying the same thing. The only way to God is to repent and realize that you cannot do it on your own and to believe in Him and to follow Jesus. But then the conversation takes an unexpected turn by people you would have never guessed would have a problem with John and his disciples. Let's look at success measured. Look at the next paragraph there. Um, we'll look at verse 26. And they came to John. They're talking about uh, John's disciples. They came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Guess who they're talking about? Jesus and his disciples. And John said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him by heaven. You yourself bear witness, me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, John says, this joy of mine is now complete. And he says some of the most profound words that you'll hear in the Bible. I, he must increase, and I must decrease. Now, if you have never grown up in a small town like I have, you're probably not going to get this. But I live in a very small town in Arkansas, uh, and my brother will attest to this. Uh, the same old people in the same old town, day after day, in the same old high school. Until a new girl or a new guy moved into town. And even if they weren't great looking, even if they didn't have a great personality, they were the new face in a circle of old faces, and they became, at least temporarily, popular. I don't know if you've ever run into that before. It happened to us all the time. And then all, so all the small folk, town folks at that point are reestablishing the new pecking order, right? Uh, and immediately assume some kind of type of competition. And it's similar to what's happening here in this story, in a way. 
See, what's interesting is somehow the debate with the Jews prompted John the Baptist's disciples to start complaining about the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. And it begins to, they were upset about their growing popular in the area, saying, they're all going to him now. And John's disciples begin to feel inferior and insecure. And in their minds, this is what they're thinking. This is our territory. This is our grounds. Basically, we were here first. The followers of Jesus evidently, I mean, followers of John evidently saw Jesus and his followers as rivals at this point. And they were disturbed by their success. And they're saying, hey, we were here before them. We have been faithful in preaching the same message as they were, even when it wasn't popular. And now here they come around as the new kids on the block, and everybody's just flocking to them. Now, before you start casting stones at John's disciples, think about this. We all have to notice that we do this from time to time, whether it's in business or relationships. We experience competition and even jealousy. Someone comes along better looking, with more money, a better sense of style, a better skill set, a better house, a better car, that look like they have it all together, etc., etc., etc. I think I've shared this story before. Um, my senior year in high school, uh, I got a brand spanking new white Honda Accord. Now, uh, that was a big deal back then, probably not the same now, but uh, I, I, got, I got a new Honda Accord. And so I couldn't wait to show off. I mean, I, I was getting to school early. I knew I was going to have the first parking place right there in front of the campus where everybody that came there was going to see it. And I'd drive up and I'd get out, get out very slowly with a lot of swagger. <laughs> Walk up and people are like, hey man, you know, nice car and all that. So as I'm walking down, I see their attention drawn to something behind me. And I look behind me, and one of my friends pulls up in a brand new BMW. <laughs> now, we all know that feeling. Like, at, at that point, what am I going to do? Am I going to be jealous of him, or am I, or I going to say, man, I'm happy for him. Good for him. He stole my glory. Good for him, you know. <laughs> now, I mean, think about it like this. Like, what if somebody pulls up in our subdivision and they got a bigger smoker than we have? Or, <laughs> and bigger screen TVs to watch the college games on and more gatherings in our church now. Uh, or somebody moves into the middle school here and starts having services at night and triple what we are in attendance. Right? How do we react? How would we react? How did John react? When someone came to John saying that others are going to Jesus and his disciples get baptized instead of them, John quickly responded that he himself was not the Christ and that people should be going to Jesus and not to him at that point. He talks about the joy that he has in knowing that Jesus is the Messiah and that he had fulfilled his preaching ministry. He had poured himself out in that way. John the Baptist makes this amazing statement. Jesus he must become greater. He must, and I must become less here. John's statement is profound. It's the truth of the gospel, though. You and I can learn so much from this attitude, this idea that Christ must become greater in our lives. And you and I must become less in our lives, in our church, and in the world. Well, how do you do that? Well, first of all, that we have two choices here, right? 
two types, when we're confronting with this, these types of situations, we can either defer and acknowledge that we're on the same page and we're happy for them and share that joy that other people are experiencing and say that if they're flourishing, then we are flourishing. Or we can become jealous, see ourselves in competition, and just become divided. See, John the Baptist understood that he had, uh, that Jesus had to increase, that Jesus' glory had become renowned and acclaimed, and that John had to just diminish, basically fade into obscurity from that point on. It's easier said than done, right? See, John the Baptist is not some superhuman. He's not some hyper-spiritual person. He is a man that struggled in all the ways that we do, dealing with his ego and his self-esteem and a longing to matter and belong and have significance in his life, yet he put it all aside to say, I will give it all up because I know what the point of the story is here. Look at our, uh, if you look in the order of worship, we have a uh, quote at the beginning there by David Palap. It says this, John the Baptist in talking about Jesus is saying that his purpose in the world is to decrease. That's what he must do. And Jesus must increase. Meaning John the Baptist's purpose in this world was to exalt Christ and not himself. There's an interesting passage that, we're going to, that you see later in Jesus' ministries. And Jesus and his disciples are confronted with the exact same thing. Maybe you've heard this before. One day one of his disciples come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we saw somebody driving out demons in your name. And we told them to stop because they're not a part of our group. And Jesus said, Listen, don't tell them to stop. Anyone that does miracles in my name? is not going to say something bad about me. For, for whoever is not against us is for us. See, as people, you and I know, and you, and you look at people around us, we, we are always acting out of scarcity, like we're, we're, we're lacking all the time. I mean, we lack purpose and vision and resources, and we're always insecure, and it makes us want to grab money and to grab all the attention we can and to grab all the approval that we can and to perform and get all the accolades that we can in, in all those ways. And we act like we're people that have no resources here. We feel like we're not enough and that we have to prove ourselves all the time. If you find yourself there, this is exactly what John is talking about here. John didn't feel this way. He worked as an overflow of God's love and a true identity and who, knowing who he was in relationship to God and in relationship to Jesus. Therefore, out of an abundance, he pours himself out that will eventually lead him not, not to have fame and glory. It's eventually going to lead John the Baptist to prison and death and to have his head cut off. How is that even possible? Well, to understand that, you have to understand my last point. Let's look at success redefined. Verse 31. That's what John says. He, uh, he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in the earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has set utters the words of the God, for he is spirit without measure. God loves the Son and has given all things in His hand. 
So, so what does that mean in terms of our redefining success? Well, first and foremost, in order for Christ to become greater and for us to become less, we have to have an understanding of who Christ is. If you don't grapple with this, uh-oh, sorry. If you don't grapple with that, we just lost our, our mic, by the way. That's a battery problem. First and foremost, in order for Christ to become greater and for us to become less, we must have to understand who Christ is and come to terms with who he is and what he's about. See, here's the thing. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, we won't worry about it, Mike. See, here's the thing. Jesus has authority, but he's not a tyrant. He's not trying to steal your life, but to give you a better one. He didn't come to condemn you, the Bible says, but to love you. Second of all, this is about confidence, not about arrogance, but about security versus being insecure all the time and who you are in Jesus, your identity. If our identity is in ourselves and our work and our relationships and in our performance, then we will never measure up and we will always be comparing ourselves to other people uh, and it, we will we'll be jealous, we'll be divided, we'll always be insecure and defensive, and it's going to turn us into someone that we just don't want to be. You've been there, I've been there, and I don't like that feeling. All this to say, and I talk about this all the time in my role here at the church plant, if someone comes along and can do what I'm doing right now better, then I pray that God would give me the grace and the strength to be able to step aside and let them lead and decrease as they thrive as a, a pastor and I de decrease. Why? Because I love this church enough to, th to think in terms of those ways. And I know that it's not about me, but it's about Jesus and what he's doing through Chelsea Perez, not through me. And when we get to that point in our lives, when I get to that point in my life, we're going to experience freedom. Everything else is bondage and a treadmill of having to perform and prove yourself and beat your competition day after day and after day. And I have lived that life often and it's miserable. And I struggle with it still at times, but I'm not going back to that. See, Jesus proclaims that the way up is the way down. See, he says we're to humble ourselves before God and serve others. And God takes note of that humility and promises to exalt his humble service. And on the final day, what we're going to experience is better than any accolade and any acclaim that we're ever going to get here on this side of glory. But it's also true every day now. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, if we humble ourselves before God, he will exalt us. So here's the main question at the end of the day today. We'll finish with this. Would you be willing to put your ambitions, what you want out of life, your agenda to succeed, your ego, your identity, at the foot of the cross today, give it up and allow God to do whatever he would like to do with it. There's a freedom of that when you have. That's how success is redefined in the Bible. See, Jesus placed all his aspirations and all his ambitions on the cross, and he died that you and I might experience life and success, but in all the right ways. When you come to him today, come to his table, taste and see that God's way is good today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for today. Thank you for the reminders in your word uh, of who we are and who we're not. 
Lord, you're not trying to tell us to be less than human. You want us to be more than what people are telling us human beings. You're not wanting us to have less success. You're wanting us to redefine it. We are made for glory. But Lord, may we put that in terms of what how you bring glory in our lives versus always trying to grab for glory and therefore miss what you're doing in our lives and stomp all over others and just always be ridden with performance-based track that we're on. Lord, give us the grace to rest in the promises of who you are and your work through Jesus Christ and not our own work. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. We want to remind our listeners that our doors are always open at Chelsea Presbyterian Church, and we invite all our listeners to join us for worship. You can visit us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at Chelsea Middle School. To hear more of our sermons from our church or for more information, you can find us online at www.chelseapres.org or check us out on Facebook.